Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi guys, thanks for tuning into the podcast again. Don't forget to like and subscribe and head over to the Patreon to contribute and help us out. Thanks a million and enjoy the podcast. Hello everybody and welcome back to the Two Narries Podcast. I'm James Enner, joined by my good friend Timmy Lang. Hi everyone. Hello on the Zandadex, how are you Ron? I'm very good. And we're back in Churchfield and we'll hop straight into it. We have a guest down from Dublin, Katrina O'Connor, a community activist, community worker, criminologist. How are you Katrina? I'm I'm doing alright. I'm Katrina. Yeah, that's no worries. I've been called worse James, don't worry. <laughs> Me too. Um, <laughs> Yeah, no, I'm, I'm really pleased to be down here and I love what you've done with the place and yeah. I've got a bit of work to be doing now. My place would be as fancy, doing some painting. Yeah, this it's time, a lovely uh, studio. This time last year, uh, this was nothing like this. But, this um, was a workshop. I, I'm a carpenter by trade. Right. And I had a bench there, back this way. There was a big lid for cutting um, timber on the side here and the place was just a mess. And yeah. um, this is what I, know, I put yeah. a tiler in as well. It's we lovely. Did, we didn't have any of this equipment either. We started small and gross. But um, mm. you're down with us, Trina, because um, you're very knowledgeable and experienced around all things, ju- youth justice, drugs, drug policy and stuff like that. But before we get into that, do you want to tell tell us a little about who you are and where you're from for the people that don't know you? Yeah, no problem. So I'm from the north side of Dublin, um, from working class community. Mum and Dad uh, had my sisters and I when they were very young. So by the time Mum was twenty three, she had four babies under five. Mm. Um, Mum and Dad, really funny people, you know, uh, great fun, but also very charitable people. So when they first got together, um, they didn't have any resources, financial resources, and they were homeless with their children. So they squatted in a couple of flats in Ballymun. You probably heard of Ballymun, and then they eventually heard of a house going in a place called Kabarak. You've probably heard of Kabarak. And they squatted in that house as well. But the corporation at the time um, threatened them with eviction mm. and they wouldn't leave. They had four little girls. So um, they made a deal with the fella from the corporation that if they left the house, that they would house them somewhere else. So my dad didn't really trust your man. So he said, yeah, all right, I'll leave the house. But I'm staying in a tent in the garden until you house me. So he gave the house back, but wasn't leaving the property. Mm. So mum and dad used to sleep in the tent and um, the lovely neighbours next door, the Peppers, who are still friends, the family now, used to take us four girls in at night. Now, I don't really remember that because I was very young. Um, but I do remember, you know, mum and dad having a lot of stress in their early marriage. Mm. They eventually married when they had me. And... Um, then they, we got moved to Darndale 
um, in a corporation house and mum really couldn't settle in Darrendale at all. So at the time, I don't know if you had it down here in Cork, but certainly in Dublin, people used to do this thing called a transfer where there'd be a few bob given to somebody to get them to transfer a house. So mm. if you could get a few bob, you could get a better location. Yeah. So mum's mother gave her a few bob and um, they got a, a swap to a house in Artane, mm. where I still live today, even though it's a different property now, because I built a little small house in the garden beside my mum. So I suppose growing up in our town, our town was quite, um, it was, it, it's quite like this area actually. Yeah. And um, there was a lot of problems with addiction in the area that I grew up with. And a lot of the lads that I knew died of AIDS because the virus mm. came in then. And we lost a lot of really talented people. One guy actually, Desi O'Dea, who I used to write to when he was in prison, uh, Desi taught Larry Mullins to play the drums. Or so he used to tell us. Now, I don't know how true it was <laughs> because Larry Mullins lived up the road from us. Um, he lived on the posh road mm. at the outskirts of Harmo, you know, mm. Um Funny story, I remember walking into the chipper one Christmas Eve, my sister and I after being in the local pub and the chipper was packed and my sister, she's very funny and very quick, she said to me, watch this and she run in and she goes, quick, Larry Mullins is in his garden. The chipper cleared, she goes, Angelo, two singles and by the time you all came back, we were gone with our chips. <laughs> um, in my sister's class, you know, very funny woman. Um, but that area, I think... One of the things that really helped me and helped some of my friends would have been a local U club. And it was the St. Vincent de Paul U club, St. Paul's U club. And they really, they were interested in us. Now, my mum and dad were very interested in us too. I was very lucky that I had two parents that were interested in their children. But they were, they were struggling through life as well. Like dad was a bricklayer. So like I've lived through maybe four recessions now. Um, and like whenever there was a recession, trades went so it was very, you'd know that yourself yeah. as a carpenter, you yeah. lose out whenever there's a recession. So money would have never been good at times. And mum was a market trader. Now, she had secretarial skills as well. And she taught my sisters and I how to type so that we would always be able to, mm. you know, earn a living because she used to do all the invoices and stuff for my dad's friends. A lot of my dad's friends came from a background, same as my dad, where they didn't get a secondary education. They were out of school at 12 and 13. My dad was on a building site in London at 13. Um, now, he could read and write, but they still needed somebody to help them. His, his literacy wouldn't have been the best, but he was some mat mathematician, like mm. he loved the horses, you know. Mm. Um, he'd be able to explain the, the bets to me and I wouldn't have a clue. He passed away in, at Christmas 2019, unfortunately, at 70. But... Um, yeah, so growing up in town, it was, we ran the roads, we played skipping, mm. uh, kiss chasing, all kicked the can. Mm. I mean, they were just, uh, mum and dad used to always come out and, and turn the rope for the kids on the road. So that my mum and dad believed that they needed to know who our friends were. So we were allowed to bring our friends into the house. Mm. Um, our house was very much kind of like a youth club. So when the youth club was over, everybody came to our house. And then as time went on, mum and dad um, opened a local shop. So we would have had a shop that had a credit book. So if people didn't have the money to pay for, you know, it, it'd be a tin of beans, a half pound of cans of sausages and a batch loaf. Mm -hmm. It went on the credit book, on the tick book. And then they'd pay at the end of the yeah. week or they'd pay when they got their uh, butter vouchers. Or the their, community spirit. Like. Yeah, yeah. Mum and dad had that, yeah. 
And um, so that's what I grew up with. And, and and when I was in the youth club, I remember I was 16. And it's something when people say to me, what made you become a criminologist? Where does that come from? And and it really, for me, it was they brought a man down from from Bonnie Bunn, actually. And he was in recovery from addiction, heroin. And he gave us a talk on heroin and he explained what I did to him and how it brought him down that avenue into criminality and, and what it stole from him. And it really made me realise how lucky I was. Even though I lived in a working class area, I was rich because I had people around me that were looking out for me. I had youth leaders that were, you know, invested in me and told me that I was special. And I I just realised how lucky I was. And it made me think, well, I want to help people that are not as lucky as I am. And that kind of brought me on, on, on a path towards theologies, as I say. So, like, I was just very interested in all theologies. So I did a, an honours degree in psychology and psychotherapy. And then I did um, a master's degree in criminology. And uh, then I did a second master's degree in uh, comparative criminology and criminal justice systems. Now, before all that, I did certificates and diplomas because when I left school there was no free education for third mm. level um, you had to pay for it you know so mm. I didn't go back to college till I was in my 20s till I was working mm. and at that stage I was working for St Vincent de Paul um, and again that made me realise uh, what poverty can do to people mm. to their sense of self and, and their opportunities and lack of opportunities and uh, do, what, you know, do you know when you were in school um, yeah Imagine around this time, you know, as you were saying, there was a lot of drug use, the heroin in Dublin as well. You know, we all know about that. Have you lost some schoolmates down through the years? And can you see, like, was it a good family unit that you had that kind of kept you on the straight and narrow? Or maybe some of your peers went down a different path? Yeah, I, I think by the grace of being a female actually gave me the upper hand. Um, in the upbringing mm. and in the area that I grew up because I think that for young males the pressures and I know that there's a lot of people who are in addiction that are female also mm. but I do think particularly nowadays James I think for young males it's an extremely um, it's an extremely uh, vulnerable time of your life that you can and there's this toxic masculinity mm. that we have going on in, in, in parts of the world not just in Ireland mm. where there's a tremendous pressure put on males to man up yeah. and do, do you know what yeah, I mean yeah, to yeah. me and I've done my uh, my dissertation for my um, degree on mental health mm. within the construction industry no it's a little bit broader than that but it was about um, some of the statistics out of it were very very strong towards the, the construction industry has more suicides than mm. any in the work industry within mm. Ireland, mm. I think it was out of every four, there was three of those were um, construction workers, you know, and, and it, it, there was a lot of focus as well on the masculine image yeah. that, that men have to portray, mm. you know, you, you know, the, the, the crack no one side and the, the mocking fellas. And yeah. the banter yeah. is persecutory at times. Yeah. But but the other side of it is, is there's that little bit of fear to ask for help. Mm. You know, to mm. say that there's actually a problem with their mental health and stuff. And um, it's ridiculous, to be honest with you, because mm. I see it on site every day. There's there's something there for a safe pass for physical health. There's nothing there for mental health, no. you know. Um, and another slant on that masculinity thing is, you know, when we were growing up, I speak for myself, when I was growing up, like, 
Um, the role models that I looked up to in the area was the people that was using drugs, the drug dealers. The, my idea of what a man was, and you know, he did work with a very negative um, perspective on employment. Um, a real man, you know, yeah. you meet any adversity with aggression and confrontation. Mm-hmm. And when I was in uh, rehab in St. Francis Farm, we challenged on all these things. Like, and so when you, when you get a bit mature, you look back and think, a very warped sense of who I am, what a man is, mm-hmm. and, you know, what it is to to be a masculine person, you know, in this mm-hmm. community, you know, we're kind of socialised that way, you know. Yeah, and I think actually in terms of, for males growing up in that toxic masculinity and, and that is an adverse childhood experience and one of the things that we've seen out this pandemic is the increase in domestic violence mm-hmm. now not for women is suggesting that it's just males perpetrating against females but the statistics will show that in the main it is yeah. um, and I think for young boys growing up in them environments that's extremely difficult and challenging and complex because you love your dad but he's causing pain and harm to your mum mm-hmm. and possibly you um, so there's a frustration around that and then you also want to be like him because yeah. young boys want to be like daddy mm. so it does does a kind of a, a complexity around how you shape who you are and if you show weakness in a domestic violence situation then you suffer even worse so you have to physically stand up like we've seen an increase like all the crime statistics will tell you that crime is down the only one that's up is domestic violence um, now, some some seizures of weapons and stuff is up, but in terms of what we're talking about, it's domestic violence. So let's let's kind of frame this in a pandemic. So stay safe, stay home. For many people, being home mm. has been the unsafest place for them, yeah. and 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 all that unresolved trauma will come out. Um, so when a young person is acting out in in you know throwing stones or, or doing a bit of shoplifting or all of these things and people are like what's wrong with him what's wrong with her they need to be asking what's happened yeah. to that young person and what can we do as a, a, a humanistic approach to resolve that trauma for young people because like the reality is if we don't do it it's going to cost us more economically mm. in the long run and mm. young lives are going to be destroyed and, and it really troubles me that in everything, and we're still in a pandemic, that there's no conversation around the mental health mm. of people coming out of this pandemic. Mm. Not just young people, I'm talking about people that have lost their jobs, that were furloughed, that may never work again, and are only in their 30s and are on the scrap heap because they walked in bars or whatever, and that's gone. Like, it, it, I really feel, and I feel strongly about this, that we had an effort approach, a health-led approach to a pandemic, which was right. We have a pandemic in this country. We mm. have a pandemic of addiction and we have a pandemic of violence, whether it be domestic violence or violence on the streets. We need a public health-led approach. It needs to be brought together with all the experts to create a action plan to deal with it. Not in five years' time. Mm. We need it happening now. Mm. Um, and it, it's very poor that we have a government that's just looking at mm. just the the health implications and just looking at the economic and mental health, you just don't hear it to me. It'll come out though. It'll come mm. out in the next, like this pandemic, no, all these, everybody will be vaccined and listen, it'll be forgotten in about a year or mm. so, whatever. But what we're going to be left with are addiction problems mm. and mental health problems. Like you brought up a point there, you know, there's, some people are physical workers and some people can sit in an office. I'm physical because I need to be kept busy because that needs to be busy, you know. And there's so many people like me. And for people like me, 
that were in the construction industry to lose their jobs. The one thing that keeps them going every single day to be told, right, you have to go home. They're sitting at home and they're bored. Mm. They can't sit still. Mm. You're, a lot of them might have undiagnosed problems, ADHD or whatever, you know, and just, mm. and they're sitting at home and what are they going to do? Mm. For boredom, they're going to drink. Mm-hmm. they're going to drug because they mm-hmm. can't handle what's going on inside in their head. Mm-hmm. You know, they're dealing with stuff that they didn't have to deal with in the past because they were constantly on move, mm-hmm. you know, and now they're at home. And, you know, these are all the things that are going to be coming at the forefront. And he, yeah. Maybe not now because people are just happy to get back, but they will be coming back. Mm-hmm. You know, people will, there will be struggles over everything that has gone on in the last 18 months. Yeah. Do you think we got, sorry, do you think we got the balance, or the government got the balance wrong in terms of protecting people from COVID, but it was probably, maybe the collateral damage was probably worse than COVID? I, I don't think the collateral damage has to be worse. I think if it was managed properly, and I still think there's an opportunity to do that. Mm. I still think that we can, even now or tomorrow or next week, sit down and work out a recovery plan for people's mental health. But I think it needs to happen. Mm. Um, in terms of the balance, look, would you have wanted to be in government when this yeah, was going on? They were damned I, if they didn't, damned if like, they didn't. I do think that there was a, a huge lack in women at the table. Mm. And I think because of that, a lot of critical uh, pieces were missed. We even now have a stage where still some hospitals will not let allow partners in when the woman is given birth um, and, and, and that's very wrong and I think we are a patriarchal society mm. we've got some loosening around the edges but as a woman growing up like in the 80s I was threatened to be brought to the priest you know mm. I was threatened to you know somebody would say you know we put you in a magdalene if you keep it up and that could have happened Mm-hmm. And I'm not that old, like I'm not 50 yet, you know, mm-hmm. so like we still are in a patriarchal society and I, it, it really kind of it aggravated me when I would see these press conferences and just man after man mm-hmm. making decisions, no females. And when you look at some of the females that were in power around the world, my sister lives in New Zealand, yeah. so... I look they at were the like Cindy. the shining lights. I mean, yeah. yeah, but now they're gone a bit communist. Like it's gone yeah. a bit hoop and nanny over there. Like they, they, they've really slacked off on the vaccine. But in, in terms of controlling the virus, there was a very uh, holistic approach to it. Mm. And I think for Ireland, and and like I mean, as I say, being in in government would have been very difficult for anybody. But I do think that some of the decisions that they had to make were very hard decisions. I wouldn't have wanted to make them. But I think now. We need to now scale back and start looking at the the big picture, like you say, the collateral damage. Mm. Because realistically, even if you want to look at it in economical terms, when we invest a euro into early intervention through whatever um, whatever social issue that we're talking about, we save the exchequer four euros in post intervention, and the, the World Health Organization will tell you that. So mm. we we know that. So I just sometimes don't get why we have people in, in power acting in a reactive way. Mm. When we've got people like you, other podcasts, people on the media, speaking to these issues and saying, this is coming down the track, it's going to come out some way. <clears throat> Why is there not that power from our voices? Mm. We're having the lived experience. We're seeing what's happening in communities. Mm. Communities always know the answers, mm. you know? Yeah, um, it's, it's, it's like the government, the people in government... Why don't they have somebody by their side from working class areas giving them advice about working class areas instead of yeah. taking advice and just 
yeah, going off th- the top of their own I, heads. Like. I just think the people in power aren't from these areas and mm-hmm. they're not directly affected for the most part by the issues we talk about. So then they're quite detached and mm-hmm. maybe the will isn't there, you know, but that's why you need more working class people in, in government, yeah. you know? Yeah, I, I agree. And uh, like... I don't know if it's that they're just attached. I actually, and I, I firmly believe this, I think they think we're exaggerating when we tell them some of the stuff we tell them. Mm. Because it's so obscene, some of the conditions that some of our working class people live in mm. um, and some of our travelling community live in mm. and some of the uh, barriers that they have to get through in life that I think they think we're exaggerating. And as a female, you can be accused of being dramatic. Mm. And I'm a very passionate woman and I'm a very, you know, vivacious woman. So I can get very excitable, but I won't change that for anyone. Mm. But I do know when I speak to sometimes people in power, they kind of go, she's off the wall. Mm. She's exaggerating. Like I'm currently trying to organise a webinar, a joint webinar between the UK police force and the Irish police force. And some of the guards in, in the on Garda Khan here are really up for it. I wrote to a couple of people in power and I'm not going to say who. And I got an email back from one of them to say, that's not a problem here. We don't have that problem here. So the webinar was about cuckooing. Um, and I'll speak to that if you don't mind for yeah. a minute. So cuckooing of people's houses. So mm. in Dublin at the moment and around Talla and Ballymun. Cuckooing or cuckooing? Like, you know, like, you know, like the cuckoo oh. comes in and takes the nest oh, okay. and then they kill all the other birds Okay. Young, yeah. and then they keep the nest. So we in Dublin, it's estimated that we have about um, recognised and kind of uh, have been identified about a hundred properties on a kind of a rolling scale that are taken over. So what happens is you might get somebody who's a vulnerable adult. So somebody who's living in social housing and they're vulnerable. They might have uh, an issue that they need support with and they can become very useful to an organised crime gang. So somebody will befriend them and then they say, listen, can I just hang out in your house for a couple of hours? I just need to make a few phone calls. And then all of a sudden that young person's house or property is taken over and it becomes a drug den. So that happens in a lot. Does it happen here in Yeah, Col- I'm thinking of yeah. my own situation. Now, when I was in the throes of addiction, I used to live with my ex at the time, who I want to name for obvious reasons. But um, these lads who I thought would have been friends at the yeah. time, but I was in the throes of addiction. Mm. And looking back, I was being used, you know. Yeah. But they used to be, I don't want to say no, that I might incriminate myself, you know, could I be prosecuted? Yeah. But just say I was in a situation like that where the house was being used yeah. to take drugs in from couriers coming from Dublin, yeah. cut it. I was getting what would only be described as a, a tiny piece of drugs and a yeah. few quid to keep yeah. me hush hush. But if the gaff was raided, it was all going to go on. It was on always you. on me, yeah, do you know yeah. what I mean? But you're yeah. made, and it, it, it starts off friendly, friendly, but then you kind that, of don't really have a choice. That's it? it. So it's grooming, isn't it? You know, and it's coercive control because you're in addiction. So that's one of the ways that a house can be cuckooed. So a vulnerable adult, somebody in addiction. Another way that can happen is it can be an intimate partner. So your partner, say somebody who maybe, say, lost her job during the pandemic and found themselves going down the road of trying to keep a few bob to keep the roof over their head. They then will um, develop a, a kind of a control over the house and the partner, the intimate partner, can't really say anything because this is the person yeah. you love. Yeah. And they've now, so you're now implicated in their criminal behaviour. Mm-hmm. Now, it could be possible as well that maybe they're in debt bondage to their dealer. So if you're in debt bondage to a dealer, you have to do what they ask you. You're now in a modern day slavery 
situation yeah. and we have no law in this country against it the uk have it so i'm trying to set up this webinar and i had somebody in power tell me doesn't happen in this country think you're over exaggerating there mm. like and i could talk about it forever but yeah. that is a serious issue and and going back to what you were saying about them being detached i genuinely believe james that they don't get how bad it is for some people. You're actually right in what you're saying, because it's very timely. There's a halt site in Blackpool not far from here called Spring Lane, and it's probably the worst, one of the worst halt sites in Ireland for the conditions that people are living in down there, right? And um, the Ombudsman for Children did a report, and it was released yesterday, and uh, it was a very damning report, mm-hmm. no? on the state, on the council, and everybody mm-hmm. involved. Yeah. On the media and the radio, the newspapers and all this, this councillor who represents that area, oh, I won't name because I don't want to give him, you know, I don't mm. want to verbalise his name to give him any attention. Mm. He's on, he's challenging the ombudsman's How report. He's like, the ombudsman now like, is the ultimate authority oh, yeah. and anything related to children's rights. Mm. And he said the ombudsman was overreacting. If it was so bad, why aren't they taking the mm. kids? And this stirs up all this cruelty man history, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, fucking hell, you can believe and, it. And you do know that line, if it's so bad, why aren't they taking the kids? That's like, be careful what you're saying here because you, we might take your kids. Yeah. And that's what the Catholic Church did to working mm. class people their whole lives. You know, like my grandfather had scars on his back from the cat and nine tails where when his mother died, him and his siblings were put in an industrial school. Like, so, you know, this is a, this is a control of working class people. Mm. We have power. Be careful what you say. Why don't we take the kids if it's that bad? Yeah. Like, see that narrative? Yeah. I don't like that. Yeah, and that's, yeah. that's about an abuse of power. That's sick in my mm. eyes. Like that kind of mm. talk from someone who's horrors. He'd mm. say something like mm. that. They're innocent children. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? They are innocent children. Can you imagine how scared them children would be if they heard that and, and, and you know, walked out what that meant? Are we yeah. at risk of being taken? Imagine the trauma for a child. Yeah, but no, there's the other side of it too. Like, if there's a child really kind of being, you know, affected by whatever's going on mm. anywhere and the, the right thing to do is probably give the child a bit of respite yeah. or a break. The right thing to do, do is give know? the family proper conditions yeah. to yeah. live in. Mm. That's the right thing to do. Separating children from their families yeah. because of a social construction that people in power have put in a place, that's 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 not acceptable mm. to me. Yeah. Like like we are a very wealthy country. Mm. You know, we're not and, and we can borrow money at zero percent rates right now. Like look at the homeless. Mm problem that we have i worked in dublin simon community as well uh, right back a, a number of years ago and um my experiences of homelessness then and what we have now is down to in my view uh policy decisions that have been made not because anything else has changed just policy decisions that have been made mm. and when i worked in dublin simon we were working towards eradicating homelessness and we were close to that um but you didn't see homeless families. Mm. It, yeah. it, now, Focus did work with homeless families. I worked for Dublin Simon. But you would probably be able to count the homeless families on two hands yeah. because yeah. it was so obscene to us to believe that. Where are we now? How have these conditions become so normalised that we accept them? No, no. Like, it just shouldn't happen in a country mm. with the status we have in this country and the wealth that is in the country. Yeah. yeah. Kids should never be homeless. No. There shouldn't be never a child homeless. No. You know, our family, for that matter, you know, and for our government to be sitting in their leather chairs in the dial or whatever, like... And, and, in the and, convention centre, yeah. 25 grand a day. And, you know, they put a, a footbridge in Cork City there, the Mary Ellen's Bridge. It's a lovely bridge. 
didn't fucking need it. There was a bridge a hundred yards that way. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> How much money? Like you're, you're, you're wondering, like who's making the decisions and stuff like this. But another thing you mentioned wrong. I worked in Cork, Simon Community, and I'm still, yeah. I'm still, um, I'm still involved there. Let's say a kind of board level there. But um, like people in Cork, especially on the radio stations, the talk shows, or oh, we've uh, the heroin problem in Cork is getting worse and worse and worse. But if you look at the data around, you know, people being arrested for possession, people attending treatment for heroin use, you know, kind of stagnated uh, in 2014, 2015. But what has happened is homelessness has increased mm. and it's the more visible. Like, mm. it's not that heroin is getting worse. People mm. are just becoming homeless. Mm. And traditionally, and you would speak to this, traditionally, if somebody got into a bit of, if the drug use got out of control, they lost their gaff, come into the Simon, try to stabilise them, save up for a deposit mm. movement to a bedside or department. Mm. You can't do that with people mm. anymore. So now they come into homeless services and there's nowhere to move them into because mm. the apartments are so expensive. You have the likes of Amazon, Apple computers, Google, Facebook employees, all vying for those same apartments with cash and how you're trying to get a fellow out of homelessness but he's happy and he's feel good in his pocket yeah. you have no hope do you know what I mean so yeah. it's like um, and then you families turning up in uh, being housed in B&B's you know and uh, a charity as well and Cork here Penny then you know we had the manager on here before and you've working men right that's working and he, he barely pays mortgage to feed his kids and he comes to the penny dinners to get yeah. fed himself. Yeah. Like, that's very sad. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, it's very wrong. Um, I mean, the penny dinners are amazing. I mean, they're just yeah. a phenomenal place, aren't they? And, yeah. and, and, and we have in Dublin um, the, the penny dinner equivalent, um, the stew house there. My mum's family would have went to the stew house because my parents come from big families, so... You know, dad was 15 siblings and mom was 10. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. They're the families of the day, aren't yeah. they? Back in the time. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah they were know, big so, families, yeah. Yeah, big families, big Catholic families, yeah. you know, the poor old women. Um, then <laughs> they were different, yeah. though. They were they, they were a different breed, yeah. like. Yeah. The yeah. women back then. They just got on with it. They just, there was never. Yeah, the only complaint. Not like it was weak feminists now. <laughs> Do you know? I think. <laughs> The I only think families in general. The just only got on time the, the the women back then would complain is the aches and pains. I remember my grandmother; she was notorious for fucking ache. Oh, Everything gosh. was aching. How many well, kids? Yeah, she, she probably have? spent my four years. Nine. Nine. She had nine. Yeah. Jesus. Yeah. She had nine. It, uh, my mother and eight brothers and sisters. Oh God. Mm. Wow. And there's 11 on my nan's side. Yeah. 11. Like, imagine spending 99 months of your life pregnant. Yeah. That'd give you fucking aches and pains. I tell you what. <laughs> there's a family down the road here, I think there was 21 or 22. Yeah. 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 There was a family beside my man, Donny Carney. My man's family came to the tenements in the inner city and then were moved out to Donny Carney. And there was 22 children. Jesus Christ. 22 yes. children That's in madness. a two bedroom house in Donny yeah. And you know what? Those women back then, they managed. They yeah. got by yeah. and they fed them kids. Yeah. You know, yeah, but, but they had no lives. They had no lives. Like as, right? as a woman, like my grandmother, my mother's mother was so intelligent, yeah. but she had no access to education. Mm-hmm. And had she have had access to education, because she ran her own business yeah. at a time when women had no kind of agency, mm-hmm. weren't allowed. But she had to because her husband was an awful man for the money, you know, mm-hmm. so she ran her own business. But she was very unusual. Mm-hmm. But my mother runs her own business. My mother's you know, in her late 60s, I won't say her full age, she'd mm. kill me. Um, and all my sisters, like my, my dad has seven daughters, no sons, uh, three different women. I have two mixed race baby sisters because my mum and dad divorced and my dad remarried a woman, uh, Charity, my stepmother, she's gorgeous. 
um, but she was 20 years younger than my dad. And um, they have two. I have a sister who's 20 on Saturday and another sister that's Happy 16. Birth, yeah. For Josephine, yeah, yeah, she'll <laughs> kill me. Josephine's a minute at the minute. But my dad reared seven very, very strong women because he saw his mother not having any opportunities in life. Mm. And, and that's what it, women were just about being at home. Like, mm. And that's one of the things I would be campaigning about removing. I think it's Article 41.3 or 43.1, whatever yeah. it is. Uh, woman's place in the home. I mean, how dare they still have that? It's still, it's still in the constitution. Still, like, geez. so a woman's place is to support the, the state by being in the home. So now there is a, a repeal kind of campaign going and yeah. you'll probably see me at some stage with a placard yeah. standing somewhere because um, it really shouldn't be there. No, but no, we not, need a referendum not, yeah. to remove it, yeah, you know. Yeah. Um, and it will it will happen. It will, it will. It will I, I think the Citizens' Assembly have mm. recommended that it's removed, but it will take a referendum to remove it. Can I talk to you a little bit about um, youth crime and yeah. offending behaviour? Sometimes, you know, when I'm thinking about my own, like as an adult today, I know, right, and I have a good job, um, have this podcast, um, respected part, I feel like... In my city, I feel very much a part of everything, you know. I, I feel like um, um, a part of the mainstream, you know what I mean? Yeah. I can do kind of pretty much what I want to do within the guidelines of the law, and you know, I feel part of something, you know. But when I was a young person, when I look at the things I did as a young person uh, in my teens and early 20s and stuff, the antisocial behaviour, the drug dealing, the joyriding, the drug use, the, all that stuff, you know. Like, I didn't give a fuck to be mm. honest which I didn't mm. care about mm. the damage I was causing to people I think like if somebody burgled my house how would I feel if somebody robbed my car how would I feel somebody you know but when I was young like we never I never felt part of the mainstream the things I have today you know like yourself you know the education piece and the uh, I never felt that that was ever there for me and mm. I resented people who had it you know mm. and I think that um, social exclusion kind of almost gave us do you know what fuck all them off yeah. that side of the city yeah. and I'm going to rob the cows yeah, I want to watch the world burn yeah yeah, and and you can understand that can't you because now as an adult looking back you can identify what them issues were for you so if people feel disenfranchised if a young person feels disenfranchised by the world so if I say to a young person did you vote in this election and they go what would my vote matter it's mm. only one if they're not engaged with the process like within our education system even in secondary education we have something that's missing and we had it when i was in school civics so a lot yeah. of people don't even understand how the electoral system works mm. um and a lot of uh, politicians won't canvas areas where the where the turnout is low like who would blame them if you're mm. somebody and you only have an amount of time to work out what, how you're going to get yourself voted back in. Because politics is parochial. It's about getting the right numbers. Mm. You know you have to reach this number. You know if you canvass this estate, you'll hit the quota. Yeah. You can't blame people being, I suppose, um, constructive with their time and, and being um, kind of creative with how they're going to get back into government. Cause, and that's why when people, when you have areas, like a lot of the work I did in the northeast inner city, a lot of them people have one of the lowest electoral kind of turnouts. Same so, yeah, and you'll find that. So it frustrates me sometimes when I hear people saying, nothing changes anyway. And I go, I will drive you to the <laughs> polling station. Please vote. Because if people don't vote, if people don't use their franchise to vote, then they cannot 
have any impact on future decisions. Like if, if somebody canvasses at your door, you need to ask them, what are you doing for young people of this area? Not nationally, of this area, of this road, of this estate. Because for me, the key is whenever national decisions or national policies are created and designed, there isn't enough room for nuance and there isn't enough room for uh, community culture and the issues that are facing certain pockets around the country. Mm. So what is affecting parts of Dublin may not be affect parts of Limerick and, and vice versa. So we do need to have some sort of measurement where we can create a tool that is flexible and adaptable enough to deal with emerging issues. And for young people today, one of the biggest emerging issues is, in my view, the recruitment of young people into criminal behaviour. Um, for all sorts of reasons, like I mentioned earlier, like debt bondage or toxic masculinity or boredom or feeling disenfranchised or actually feeling like being part of a group is safer than being outside of that group or looking for some sort of surrogate family, looking for somebody who cares for them. These people will tell them that they care about them. They're going to look after them. They'll throw them a few bob. And then all of a sudden that young child is in something that is way above because they're very useful. So it, it makes young, sense young people like that are ballsy as well uh, and they'll yeah. carry drugs and weapons yeah. more, and they get the credit yeah. and yeah. More, and you get kudos then yeah. and you get the hard man and then nobody messes with you so if you're somebody who's being bullied in the home or being bullied on the street and all of a sudden you're with you know Trina the hard woman nobody will touch you then then it makes sense doesn't it there's yeah. also a protection piece there and that's quite critical thinking of young people so if you're growing up somewhere that's you know a tough place to be and you can align yourself with somebody that nobody else will touch and then the problem is you then get them self-medicating their pain Mm. by starting to use drugs and the problem that we have in this country is how we criminalise young people before they have a chance to self-actualise. So young people who are criminalised because they're smoking a bit of grass, they're smoking a bit of hash. I mean, we really need to be looking at the Portuguese model. Mm. We need to be looking at what's done there. I mean, I I was very conflicted with the whole Portuguese model there for a while. And then I know Tony Duffin very well from Anna Liffey Mm. because Tony and I worked in Dublin Simon at the same time. So that's how far back we go. And I asked Tony to explain to me the Portuguese model. And when he explained it to me, I was just like, why are we not doing this? I know. Uh, You know, like, uh, and now before that, I was thinking, oh, you know, hash can cause schizophrenia and somebody who has a predisposition because I'd read all the the medical journals. And by the way, that is not a true reflection, you know, and that is something that people hear. But there is medical research into these things and it's like everything else you can read one thing and just go down that rabbit hole mm. but when you hear about what's happening in portugal why are we not doing that here mm-hmm. we know? had um i don't know if you know Gab- dr gabo Mata. amazing mm-hmm. we had him on the I, podcast I, a few weeks ago yeah i watched it guys and i met him in um in dublin castle one time i mean he's just he's a gent isn't he he's mm-hmm. just got this air about him regalness yeah. I think Tony introduced me to him actually yeah. um, Just he's just got this uh, almost Gandhi like mm. presence yeah do you know and he's just a legend want. like yeah oh he's and so humble but somebody mm. something we, we spoke about the portuguese model mm. and he was talking about um the frustrations of the whole lot no like because he was saying like the the science is behind it yeah he was saying he was in front of a senate uh in, in the parliament in canada and they were asking him about evidence-based practices and evidence-based treatments and he was like um talking about you know, working with drug users and stuff and he was saying me on and they weren't interested and mm. he was saying like mm. 
you're asking me about evidence-based practice and evidence-based treatment, but you don't practice evidence-based policies. Mm. The policy is driven by ideology. Yes. And it's not that the science doesn't back the Portuguese model. And in Germany, they have a different one where there's no kind of, it's just decriminalization. And there's different forms of it and legalization in Canada for cannabis and Uruguay and stuff. It's not that the science isn't there. It just doesn't fit with the ideology of the, the conservatives. Well, it's a narrative, isn't it? If they if they come out, if any of the parties that are in power come out and appear to be soft on crime, and because that's what they're afraid of, mm. this is about being soft on crime. Like they will be fearful for their position, but being hard on crime is not about criminalising young mm. people. Like, nobody wants criminals to get away with criminal behaviour. Mm. But what I want is an opportunity to let young people have a, a, be able to make a mistake. So if you're somebody from inner city Dublin who makes a mistake and you come from a background where there might be addiction in the background and, and some other social issues, you're treated in a very different way to a young lad who comes from a background where there's social capital mm. where there's people there that can point you in the right direction or get you a barrister so that you avoid being brought into the criminal justice system so you can make a mistake and be treated in a different way to somebody who comes so immediately that young pair i mean thanks be to god there wasn't social media when i was a teenager i know we always like, say that <laughs> you know the pressures yeah. be ruined like you you wouldn't come back from it no. and i know some young people have put things out on social media and it really is difficult for them to come back yeah. from, like what they're growing up with. But making a mistake, like you know, experimenting with drugs, and most people, if they're honest, will tell you they have done. Mm. Like mm. most people I know have even done. Leo. Uh, what? Even Leo Varadkar uh, admitted. Well, Leo admitted. <laughs> I mean, we've all had a joint pass to us at least yeah. once at a party. Um, Everyone. Yeah. Everybody has tried something at some yeah. stage, you know. Yeah. And, and, and uh, but it's what happens with the criminal justice system, depending on your resources, mm. that then dictates where you go. Mm. Because if you're 13 or 14 and you're criminalised, you can understand why you might say to yourself, well, if I'm going to be a criminal, I'm going to be the best bloody criminal go. Mm. And you're going to then get in deeper and deeper. And then you're going to lose your connection with civil society. And and when does not connection with your community and with civil society, like you were speaking to earlier, James, yeah. about, you know, you were like, feck them, I don't care. I get that because you were in pain. You were obviously in pain because you were in addiction and you nobody was helping you, mm. you know. So you just wanted to cause pain to other people. Psychologically, that makes sense. And it makes sense to anyone who's listening. If you're in pain, you want other people to be in pain because they're not listening to your pain. And let's be honest. Drugs are the best painkiller. Mm. Yeah, it's like government says it's not it's not why the addiction is why the pain. Mm. You know, it's where where is the pain coming from? Mm. You know, and um, there's a fantastic book that goes uh, by uh, the Bruce, what's his name? Bruce Perry. No, not Bruce Perry. That one at the moment, Johan Harry. He travels oh, the yeah. world and yeah. looks at the war on drugs in different countries, and he went to Portugal. Yes, and the screen. Uruguay. Chasing the yeah, Chasing the Scream. Right. What a fantastic book. Really? It explains how the war on drugs started initially back in the 1920s in um, the US, where it, it was initially a war on alcohol. Yeah, the prohibition. And when, yeah. when the alcohol, uh, the prohibition stopped and the alcohol, then there, there was this guy, his name is Harry Hassinger, something like that. Um, and he just disliked the Hispanic people and the African-American people because 
of the they used to smoke weed and, and whatever. And they were very relaxed and chilled yeah. out and, and he did time. and the yeah. Chinese with the well, opium. He was racist. And that. He was he was an out and out racist. Yeah. And that was his way of of just coming down on top of them. Mm. And he was an authority figure. He had a lot of power within uh the, the the government over there and they just that's how it started. And for other countries then within Europe and everything else, for them to be a part of the Americans, be connected to them, allies yeah, yeah. They were told that they had to introduce these policies, mm. you know, around drug addiction. Drugs mm. had to be taken out. Like in England was one, and 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 I know there was another few European countries. So it's all so it's all been driven by ideology. This yeah. whole you know war on drugs, but even within that, then like in the UK, they had um, heroin assisted treatment, mm. where like if somebody with a chronic opiate addiction, where other forms of uh, treatment hasn't worked, the GP would prescribe them heroin in the clinic. And yeah. you know, administer a forum and supervised and everything, and they can live you know full lives and mm. you know do whatever. Um, do you think that that could work in in Ireland? Or I I, I think we need to do something different, and yeah. we think we need to do something radical, and I think we need to acknowledge that we're going to lose several generations if we don't step in. And I think I remember years ago watching the Late Late Show when I was a teenager, and I remember. There was a journalist on and he, he quoted Larry Dunn, who was a very well-known criminal in Dublin. Mm. And when he was being sent down, he said something along the lines of, you think I'm bad, wait and you see what's coming after me. Mm. And he was right. And and I think the reason why he was right was because we don't have just traumatised children. We have intergenerational trauma on trauma on trauma. And we're now from the 70s, four or five generations from the heroin when it came into this country, late 70s, early 80s. And we have children that have been reared in um, households where people are struggling and there's unresolved trauma for them. And then we don't have the scaffolding around them young people with social services because it's not joined up. Mm. And I think that that's where we're failing our young people. And when a young person is... Like when you see some of the social media stuff that we've seen, violence in young people, mm. um, and, and it's horrendous. And they're victims and you worry. Like I use the dart all the time. I thought, Jesus, how would I feel if that was me? Yeah. Um, and, and that is very troubling for people. But that doesn't mean that we should then look at them young people and go, well, they're scum. Mm-hmm. And we shouldn't label them young yeah. people. Mm-hmm. We need to start asking how can we assist these young people to become pro-social um, members of society to understand that antisocial behaviour like that and, and violent behaviour because the levels of violence trouble me um, very much so because violence only goes one way. It doesn't de-escalate. Violence gets worse and worse mm-hmm. and worse. And children that are being involved in violence will become desensitised and become even more violent or if they're suffering violence themselves through their peers. And that's another thing that happens in organised crime gangs. Young people will be initiated into the gang by being beaten Mm. by the other members of the gang or threatened with a beating. Like people talk about young boys being beaten by hammers and that's acceptable now in in Mm. certain cohorts. I mean, like that's awful, like... The, the important thing here, Trina, really to look at is these young boys, teenagers that are doing these things, they've been completely left on by society mm. and the government in this country. Yeah. You know, um, and different people in their own lives mm. growing up, mm. you know, and I'm saying there's no, you know, from my own experience and stuff like, but they're then being labelled and yeah. attacked yeah. by people because, as you mm. said, they're scum, mm. they're this, they're that and the mm. other. You're not going to ever be anything. Yeah. 
that's yeah. just fucking throwing them straight down the road yeah. again yeah. and just throwing them, do you yeah. know, in, in where? Yeah. Into a fucking uh, bin, like, and just saying you're no good. Saying that's a 13-year-old, you're washed up. Yeah. Rather than we fecked up yeah. with the conditions you're living in, with the construction of your community, with the lack of resources, with the lack of access to education, with the lack of support for your parents... We we hear this narrative. What about their parents? It's not it's not society's responsibility to raise these children. No, it's not. But what it is is, as a society, we have a responsibility to own up when we messed up, and when we have communities where there's trauma that's unresolved, where we have addiction and there's no services, where we have people living in homelessness, where we have people living with mental health issues and no support, we as a society are responsible. And that's what's going on in this country, in parts mm. of this country. There's, there's no education around addiction. There's no education around trauma. There's no, and they're both connected: mental yeah. health, trauma, mm. addiction. There should be education around all of it for parents, for teenagers in school, just, to, just to, just for some of them to have that light switch go off in the head. Oh, do you know what? I'm doing this at home. I should stop that because. This might happen down the line with the child. He might develop like a restorative approach, yeah. Timmy. Mm. Like, yeah. like restorative processes allow young people to repair the harm. Mm. Like when you two guys came back into society, was there a pathway for you for reintegration back into your your society mm. and your community? I know there are services available, mm. but the reality is you have to find your way. Mm. Now, if we're going to really rehabilitate people, we have to understand that once you finish your sentence that you're going to need supports mm. and I know there are supports there but for young people say another cohort that really worries me is young people that are in care so you know the way earlier we were talking mm. about saying oh we need to take them into care mm. when that young person turns 18 all of a sudden they're an adult and they're out yeah. on their ear and they're now, way overrepresented in homeless services yes they well. are and, and like they don't stop being vulnerable because they're 18 they're, they're probably even more vulnerable now that they're 18 Mm. Because now they'll have access and they'll have capital like where they might have a resource like a, a property or they might have money coming in. So they're even more useful. And and the reality is for the brain, when we look at, you know, the functioning of the brain, when we look at the damage that trauma does physiologically to the brain, we have young people growing up that might be 25, but may only have the emotional maturity of a 14 or 15 mm. year old. And I'll put my hand up there. Particularly that if you're was using me, drugs. You know, when I stopped. Using yeah. drugs at the age of 30. Yeah. I literally, I remember walking on the yard of the prison in the Midlands, walking, and I felt like an eight-year-old child, even younger. Mm. I could not physic. I could not have a conversation with another human being because I, I, I had no vocabulary. I had no self-esteem. I had no confidence. And, and when I put down the one thing that kept me alive for 20-odd years of my life, it was like, oh, my God, what the fuck, like... And I was literally completely destroyed inside the cell where I every day thought about taking my own life because I couldn't manage my own stuff, my own trauma, you know. But um, And that's when I found meditation, which is a different story. But going back to the point of it, it's, it's it, it, do you know, it's just, do you know, I'm going to have to lose my fucking yeah, train of thought. Like what you're talking <laughs> about there, you know, so when I detox. That's tough what you were talking about. Yeah, it is tough stuff, but um, a lot of a lot of people, when they do stop using, you know, they are left with that child, that mm. child that was mm. stunted at a young age, yeah. and now they're left in the big world. They haven't got the crutch mm. of alcohol or drugs anymore. And 
And people expect you to have the... Be an adult to, to be and an, stand and, up. And, and to have critical thinking. But, but, yeah. but, but when you... When you start using drugs, probably because of trauma, you will have split thinking. Mm. So you only think in black and white. Mm. And that grey thinking only comes with, you know, work that we do on ourselves. And like I I said this on another podcast, and I'm sure you'll probably um, get what I'm saying here. I said, you, if you want to know somebody suffered trauma in their childhood, you need to ask them to tell you about the day they grew up. And Mm. if they start telling you, then you know they had trauma because most people do not remember the day they grew up because growing up is a gradual process mm. and a, a, in the normal lifespan, not to mm. say it's abnormal, but you mm. know, it's, it's in, 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 in most people, they grow up gradually, but you ask somebody about the day they grew up, they can tell you, and it's usually because of a trauma mm. and that's where you get stunted emotionally yeah. and you lose that critical thinking because mm. you have to think of black and white because it's about protection mm. yeah. because when you're growing up in that environment where you've got stressors toxic stress coming at you from all different kind of angles then in order for you to survive like you're survivors Mm. because you were able to survive and may have taken drugs as a crutch for a time but now you're in this situation and uh, your vocabulary is is fan dabby dozy now timmy it's not too bad there was uh, (laughs) when i was doing me i do get stuck at times when i was doing me uh when i was doing me college there was this one psychology theory that i found very helpful to explain that for me because like timmy i felt i was i felt i turned 14 15 and Mm. i i didn't age out before i felt 14 15 i was wearing the same clothes the same behavior was doing the same thing 27 you know um, but does the uh, Eric Erickson he has like uh, in 12 stages of psychosocial development yeah. you know and when you come into your adolescent years you come into a crisis uh, it's identity versus role confusion so you're in that where you know you're in that stage where uh, are you going to be a gat or are you going to yeah. do this trend or this fad and that's why kind of young people get mm-hmm. caught up there but I think for young people like us like I kind of formed the identity of like I never felt I was tough or anything like that, but I felt like I had to be. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So I, I, I had this image then that I, I'm not really tough, but you know what I'll do? I'll be able to take the most amount of drugs amongst the boys. And that was the identity I fostered for myself was this, um, if I can use the label of junkie scumbag, because that's what we kind of uh, were labeled oh, as. Yeah. But as I, as I got into my adulthood, I was still doing the same thing, walking, like Tim, you know, walking the yard, the up and coming group now are behind me, I'm 26, 27, I still doing the same thing. And it's like, how do you get out of that, you know, but it's just like... So boys, how did you, what, like, can you, can you, I suppose, I'm not supposed to be asking questions. No, I'm really, away. Sometimes really it's interested. nice to be asked yeah. questions. Yeah. I'm really interested to know, like, what was the light switch for you guys? I know you both had different journeys, but what, what, did you have children that you thought, mm-hmm. I need to be there for, did you have the partner? Like, what was it? Or did you just realise that you loved yourself enough and you deserved a bloody shot? Like, what, what was it? I think, it? Uh, for me, I think it was a perfect storm of a lot of different conditions. Mm-hmm. I think down through the years, I had very good people try to help me, but I wasn't ready at that time, you know what I mean? And when you're on a destructive path, you know yourself, if you, you could do great work with a young person, but when a young person is on the path, most often he has to ride it out, you know, and hopefully he survives it. Um, but like that, I was 27, I was mature, uh, maturing, you know, I was still fucking no life skills or anything like that. Um, I, I tried treatment a few times, I was relapsed on the day when I got out, never had the belief that I could actually, you know, do anything other than what I was doing, you know. Um, there was a pivotal moment that involved two guards, would right. you believe that? 
So when we were talking about earlier on, you know, like in, in this area, our um, relationship with the girls would be very negative for the most part. The Gardaí would be seen as an organised people that are not there to help you. If you ever had an issue in the neighbourhood, you wouldn't ring the girls, you'd all sort it out yourself. Yeah, that's the kind justice. of... justice. Yeah, that yeah. type of thing, you know. And the girls were always seen like an outside interference. So I, but I had an overdose there and not far from here and um, two guards came across me and the guards were like um, you know I was expecting uh, a stop and search I met him a couple of days after the overdose I was expecting a stop and search and they were like they didn't do that you know, and they were saying can you remember the other night you were a bad overdose you were lucky somebody found you and raised the alarm and we came on the scene blah 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 and I said look James we know you were a long time now and you're going to be found dead you need to look after yourself you need to seek help you need to blah 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 and I come away from there thinking, fuck it, if the girls are showing me, I'm passionate now. I'm pure desperate now. Oh, yeah. I, I was like, I must be fucked altogether. Do you know what I mean? And I rang Merchants Key Ireland two days yeah, later. And I, I got into Detox St. Francis Farm. Now it took me six months. Like, but, um, it, but like that, again, it was treatment. But the biggest, the, 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 the biggest thing I think after was the aftercare I got. Yeah. I come into the care of Simon because I was homeless when I came out mm. and I was minded in a sober house. I had a key worker. Mm. I, they put me on a C scheme cleaning the Simon yeah. and I was minded for the first 12 months. So yeah. I had to go through yeah. what Timmy spoke about there, not having the vocabulary, not having the confidence, like trying to uh, present in your home city without the drugs to mm. quell all the self-esteem issues, the, ang- the reason you started using in the first. They're all very magnified in early mm. recovery. You don't have that crutch, but I was minded in that process. Mm. And I think that's why I recovered. And it was the help of Narcotics Anonymous and yeah. different charities, you know. So that's my story, anyway. Mm. <laughs> Thanks. And what about you, Timmy, then? Um, me, probably... Um, um, it was just one moment, really, for me. You know, I was gone from my wife at the time. We weren't married at the time. But she was my partner. We'd we'd uh, two kids. There was a barren all wrote me. I was your 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 mad bastard that went down a binge for a week after being off it for six weeks because right. he'd he was up to his eyeballs in trouble with the courts, the guards, uh, people in my life. You know, I'd, I'd, I was open bail for different stuff and then, you know, committing crimes then as well in between. But I was just, when I had a drink or a drug, I was just completely out of control. There was no, anything went. I could be anywhere, do anything and nothing kind of fazed me because I'd no, I'd no limit on life. I thought I would be dead by the age of 30 and I really didn't care, you know. Um, and I always revert back to this and Paul McCann. It was a, it was a front day, front page headline that Paul McGrath had on his pay, on the Sunday World years ago when I was in prison, and I said, "When I drank, I didn't care about my kids," yeah. and that just resonated with me. One hundred. You had million. kids at the time. I had two. Yeah. But I I I, I would have gave my life for, for for my child in the morning back then because I didn't know what love was. I never experienced love throughout my whole life, you know, and I didn't know what it was, but I knew that that's what. I thought that would be was love, you know, but um, it was just I got it myself into another scrape. I done another robbery, um, Saint Stephen's is there, fucking back in two thousand and eleven, you know, um, no family at the time in terms of nobody yeah. wanted to be around me, you know, and uh, I got t- caught for another robbery, you know, um, and put put into a cell, and during the space of me. Being chased by the guards 
and arrested and going into the cell and left in the cell, there was one thing came into my mind and that was, I had drugs planted on me. Cheat. Uh, that's what yeah. we say. And that was the only thing that kept me going, will they mm. ever just leave me alone inside this cell can I, so I can go back into mm. the bag and start using it again? Mm. That was all that went through. And when they left the cell, I was completely naked now in the cell because it was, a, it was I won't go into the details, but uh, they left the cell. I got up, I couldn't find the drugs, so I started crawling around the cell floor, um, trying to pick up pieces of white ceiling paint on the floor, thinking that there were lumps of crack, cocaine or, 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 or whatever. Um, uh, not crack cocaine, lumps of cocaine. At the time, I wouldn't have been using crack. Yeah. But... And um, that was my focus. And I just had this just glimpse, my first ever, ever glimpse of true awareness that I knew it was something other than my. And it's just, what the fuck are you doing here? Like, like you're, you're inside in a cell, you're going to prison. You're you naked know. crawling around a cell. Yeah. And, 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 and the only thing you can think of is, is, is more drugs. Yeah. And you want to snort bits of ceiling. Ceiling like, paint, yeah, yeah, it worse. It's mad. Isn't it was it? just fucking ridiculous. I see. I thought I was the the, the bag was after opening. Yeah. I was just. I was. I was completely psychotic yeah. as well yeah. at the time. I was completely yeah. paranoid. Mm. I was. Uh, I was put on meds after mm. by the doctor. But even in that moment of psychosis, yeah. you still had the strength of character to this, say this happened. I've had that never happened before in my life. I never had awareness. I nothing ever broke through my. My reality of mm. constant drinking, drug and mm. crime. Not never broke through. Mm. This was the first ever. And I, and I sat back and, and I said, and I got up in the bed in the cell, uh, and, and I just cried. I mm. cried for the night until I fell asleep. And that was cathartic. Yeah. That was the last time I drank or drugged or gambled or yeah. got involved in crime. We were very lucky yeah. that we both kind of had that moment of awareness yeah. to think, fucking hell, this yeah. is... Drunk. That was my rock bottom. A lot of yeah. people don't get that yeah. awareness they they and don't. they'll use to the end. Yeah, yeah. You know? yeah. I, I, I think that can be the issue, particularly for young people, because they don't get to the age. Because you don't hear about criminals retiring and getting old. They mm. die. They, 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 they get murdered or they die over us or do life. Yeah, you know, That's the story. There's three options. Yeah. They are your three options mm. in my eyes. I was either going to be lifed off yeah. because I was very violent as well, Trina. Mm. I was going to be lifed off. I was going to be murdered. Mm. Uh, uh, I was, what? What was the other one? Or uh, probably just in, inside a mental, mental institution. institution. Yeah. That was, that was yeah. where I was now at the end. Yeah. It was one of the three of them. Mm. And I probably... If I was to go over three, I thought I would have probably looked at either my murdered yeah. or our life off oh, would yeah, have, would, yeah. would have been yeah. one or two of them. Like, can I ask you a question on uh, yeah. gangland because we've about ten minutes? But yeah, um, okay. Um, we don't have the gang culture in Cork like you do in Dublin. Do you know, mm. we don't have that organised crime element. Yeah, it's kind give, of give it time, James. Yeah, I know it's kind of small, kind of pot, but it's very prevalent in Dublin and and, and in Drotted as well. Yeah, but and referred to that care mm. district. Can you remember that TV show? And I, I remember I seeing you. It's around the uh, Finglas and Blanchestown, the gay out of the district. Oh, you know? inside the cave, yeah. But I, when, I, yeah. when I was looking at that, I couldn't believe, like, they'd only children now, like, and they were wearing fucking Snow jeans gear. worth 1,500 euro jeans. And a, the Gucci gang, I yeah, think that was, yeah. the Gucci gang. Like, how, like, how the fuck does some young person get caught up in that? And, like, how do they get out of it, do you know? Yeah, that that's the difficult bit, isn't it? Navigating away from it. That's where yeah, we need navigators. Yeah. We need to look at... Um, 
the Scottish model, say the Violence Reduction Unit in Scotland, where they created uh, youth walk navigators and trauma-informed uh, approaches. Because the reality is young people who are in that kind of environment are difficult to deal with. Mm-hmm. Um, you'll say something that you think is reasonable and probably 99% of the people in the world think is reasonable and you'll set that young person off and that's a trauma response. So what we have to learn is rather than diagnosing young people with personality disorders or, or medicating them or calling them ADHD, we need to call it for what it is. That's a re- trauma response from that person. Mm. So we're seeing a trauma response, so this is where we need to provide support, um, whatever they may be for that individual. And that's hard work, and that's challenging work. So how do young people get involved in it? It can be as easy as, I walked in the inner city of Dublin for a number of years, and I remember looking out my office one afternoon and I saw a young fella being handed something to put into his pocket and I'd say he was 12 and the older young fella that was maybe about 16 pointing and going like that and the young fella went off on his bike Mm. so that young fella obviously was dropping something off and now that young fella hopefully with support around him got moved away from that but the reality is for some young people they may not have people Mm. around them that can't support them because they may be in their own addiction or they may have their own maybe mental health issues with depression. So they don't have the capacity to support that young people. And that's where we need to step in. Mm. Um, and that's very much what I advocate for. So it's, it's, it, you, can be, you can be involved in any number of ways. A young person can be involved because they don't feel listened to at home. Mm. You know, somebody doesn't have time to listen to them. Maybe parents both have jobs and are time poor. So there may not be the poverty of money, but there may be the poverty of time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and even for us Gucci lads, no, I think something that I was thinking about was, um, you know, like we live in a society where it's very materialistic and we value, you know, having commodities and having the nice things. Yeah. And for the young people that don't have the legitimate means to acquire those, mm. they still want the same stuff we want. Of course. But they're just going, and they're just going about, go about it a different way, you know. Yeah, but yeah. there's another point as well. Right, these young lads are 14, 15 and they're growing up looking at the respect all the drug dealers are getting, the cars, the money, mm. the women. Mm. The fear. You know, fear the have. fear, the respect. Mm. You know, all of the things these are all human things that yeah. adults, uh, yeah. that human beings want. They want respect. Yeah. They want finances, mm. money. They want you know, power. They want mm. connection. Mm. They want mm. to be associated with with yeah. something that yeah. means that something, yeah. and where they feel the same as. That's yeah. a, that's very yeah. important. Or, or better than. Yeah. And I think for young people growing up, where there is a perceived lack of opportunity to achieve and wealth through illegitimate means, and you've got this uh, opportunity, like like if you're working a full time job and you're an apprentice plumber. What do you get? Maybe three fifty a mm, week. If you're lucky, yeah. If you're lucky, right? So if you're a young fella and somebody says, "Drop that bag up there, stand up there, and stay yellow," so call out if anybody's coming, and I'll give you five hundred a week. Like, and you don't see yourself being able to get any further than just being a plumber. Not to say, I mean, plumbers yeah. are very important jobs, but you want the wealth that you're seeing that they have, yeah. and and when you don't have that critical thinking piece, mm. because 
They will tell you, don't worry about it. You won't, you'll only get a caution. You won't get a conviction. They don't tell you that if you go into criminal justice, into, into youth justice at that time, it will affect whether you can do, you know, work with kids when you're later or whether you can travel or whether you can get yeah. a visa to certain countries. So they're manipulated and, and their vulnerability is taken advantage of. Yeah. So there's lots of different ways, James. Yeah. But because there's lots of different ways, there's lots of different ways we can intervene. Mm. And that's the piece that I think we need to do some work on as a yeah. country. But I think there's another podcast in you, Trina. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, no, it was great talking to you. And thanks, you. thanks for coming down from Dublin. Oh, thanks, guys. Thank you. Thanks. No, I really appreciate you taking the time over. I know, like, um, a lot of travel. So, look, I hope you enjoy your bit of grub in Princess Street tonight. We are, and uh, <laughs> it's like a holiday for me. It's the furthest I've been in 16 months. Yeah. I know, it's great to get out, isn't it? We're going up to Wexford tomorrow to meet somebody oh, as well. Lovely. So, we're actually looking forward to the three of us get on the road yeah. and have a bit of crack. You know, yeah. it's been a rough old year, but we're, mm. there's light at the end of the tunnel. So, look, yeah. enjoy your evening and uh, Thank thanks you. again. Thanks, guys. Thanks, uh, thank you, Trina. Thanks to everybody that watches and supports us. Thanks, Timmy. Thanks, everyone. Uh, thanks to Roman and the Dex, and we see you all next week. Hey, thanks for listening to the podcast. Uh, don't forget to like and subscribe, and don't forget to head over to the Patreon if you'd like to help us. Thanks again. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.